This is Trust the Evidence, a new podcast series from the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford, presenting conversations with individuals interested in improving healthcare through the use of better evidence. Hello, I'm Kamal Matani and welcome to another episode of the Trust the Evidence podcast series. Today I'm joined by Professor Richard Hobbs, who amongst his many roles is the head of department of one of the largest primary care research groups in Europe, as well as director of the NIHR School for Primary Care Research. Good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon. Richard, you're a practising GP and established senior researcher. Can you tell us why having a strong evidence base in primary care is so important in healthcare? Well, I think the one of the most uh, significant reasons is that primary care itself is uh, a very important component to healthcare systems. Um, primary care is defined in all sorts of ways, but it basically encompasses longitudinal care of smaller populations of patients, i.e. people living in a defined geography, um, and outside of hospital settings. Um, and in that context, for most health systems, it represents the majority of health contacts and most of the prevention um, of illness um, opportunities health systems have as well. So the provision of primary care is so important to healthcare itself that actually better evidence about how you can more effectively provide that is important. So that's a practical consideration. Um, I've already given a hint as to some other elements as to why it's important and I think the disease prevention one is perhaps one that we currently hugely underinvest in. Obviously, uh, it's very important for us to try and either prevent diseases occurring or at least diagnose and intervene if there's an evidence base that will alter um, disease trajectory as early as possible. Mm. And those are very important areas for primary care um, researchers and um, the body of practice. Um, the other reason is that it's been a very underdeveloped area of clinical research practice in the past and um, that means that there's quite a number of things that occur in primary care that are custom and practice for which we're less certain there's a, mm. an evidence base so there's a degree of catch-up about some of the things that we do um, in addition to actually researching um, novel areas that will help in the future change the way we practice medicine. Mm. It's interesting that, that, that you know that, as you said, that breadth of of patients that that first face uh, contact with healthcare in primary care, and as you said, that catch up of where how important primary care research is in that. Um, can you give us any examples of where primary care research has? impacted on society or you know or that, or that patient cohort yeah I mean I could give you uh, many many examples probably easier to talk about some of my own research yeah. interests over the uh, 30 years or so I've been a clinical researcher uh, much of my research has been around vascular disease and for example some of the work that uh, I've done in, in heart failure has um, changed the way that we think about this as a chronic disease. We, we did quite a lot of work around um, highlighting the devastating impact on quality of life heart failure has uh, for patients. We've also provided quite a lot of data on um, 
what the prognosis of the condition is. Um, data previously had all been based on patients who were diagnosed during a hospital admission and clearly their end stage heart failure, whereas we've provided data on the totality of um, stages mm. of the disease. Um, another very important example, which was linked to that heart failure work because it related to atrial fibrillation, which is a common co-associate with uh, heart failure, was uh, actually in, in the stroke prevention of um, patients suffering in atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. And um, some of our um, work was instrumental, for example, in um, demonstrating that aspirin had a very limited therapeutic place uh, in preventing stroke in these patients and indeed uh, ultimately resulted in most um, world guidelines actually dropping aspirin as a therapeutic option. That was very much based on our work and had particular um, strength because it was based on the sorts of patients that are out there mm. in the community, the elderly population, mm. the population who um, had traditionally not been recruited into the um, earlier trials. And here was a, um, a trial in a very at-risk and um, very community ambulant population that convinced people that the evidence therefore was applicable to mm. the generality of patients. Mm. So that was, that was very influential. And indeed, one of the other um, consequences of that study was we had to design ways of um, safely anticoagulating patients that were entered into the trial. Um, well, what came out of that was effectively a validated mechanism to to actually run anticoagulation safely out of hospital settings. Mm. Now, we take that for granted now, but uh, when we did this work um, 15, 16 years ago, um, very, very little anticoagulation was done out of hospital settings, and yet here was a trial developed um, by um, primary care in primary care which um, which came up actually with the way that the NHS ultimately determined was the way it wanted to roll out uh, anticoagulation out of hospital settings across the entire NHS. Mm. Um, other very notable examples um, include uh, early recognition of disease, particularly around worrying signs. There's been uh, important work that's looked at how you can predict very sick children from mm. sick children um, and also lots of work around um, the ways that we can effectively reduce antibiotic prescribing all mm. sorts of different studies around that um, health behavior change smoking cessation these are all areas that primary care researchers has had dramatic um, um, results that have changed clinical practice yeah I mean when you provide some of those examples you know it's, it's it feels so obvious how how important high quality primary care research is and how how that can translate um, particularly some of the examples you've given already into improved patient care it seems from what you're saying as well primary care has has evolved and changed over the years would that would that be right yes i mean i it's still a uh, academic discipline in most countries um that's hugely underdeveloped, frankly. Even in the United Kingdom, it's still mm. underdeveloped from where it should be. And during my lifetime, the number of academics um, 
has remained relatively constant, which is in some ways a disappointment. Mm. But I think the quality has very significantly increased, and I think that what um, academic primary care is capable of delivering now is much greater than it was when I first um, went into academic research. So that's a very important change, that the capacity in terms of quality and ability has immeasurably improved. Mm. And if we can continue to invest in training um, and bringing forward a new cadre of academics in larger numbers, then I think, uh, I think we're in a good place to, to achieve that. We just need it to be a more popular choice um, and to continue to provide means to enable younger researchers to, to make that career choice um, and then stick with it for the future. And then so extending that in, in, to a certain degree, how, you know, if we had a, a, a some sort of telescope into the future, how do you think primary care research might look, say, 20 years from now? Because it seems like it's growing in importance. It's, you know, the, the, the examples you gave, the relevance, the applicability to routine practice, it's grown from the past, it's growing now. Where, where do you think it's going in the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it is uh, a much more positive um, view looking forward, mm. but that doesn't mean to say I think it's going to be easy. Mm. I think we're the one branch of medicine that is the most multidisciplinary in mm. its approach to clinical research, which is important. Um, so methodologists, whether they be um, statisticians, systematic reviewers qualitative researchers, that then they're probably more important in our type of research mm. than they are in other disciplines. So it's important that we invest both in clinical scientists but also the methodological scientists to bring the um, to bring the the field alive. So mm. that's very important. Mm. Um, I think having said that though we've Got these, we've still got issues of a bit of a disconnect between our clinical base and the academic base. So there are so few academic um, um, GPs um, that we perhaps aren't perceived as, as relevant to our service um, clinicians as, as we should be. Now, Clearly there's, there's some of our own fault here. We don't communicate as well as we might do about why we're an important element of um, uh, general practice. Um, but that's important that, that general practice itself um, actually recognises the value and relevance of research to its um, future development as a clinical discipline and um, provides ways that uh, it both seeks the input that, that we can provide around the sorts of questions that we can answer and why they're therefore important to incorporate into clinical practice, but also structure themselves in a way that makes it easy for them to support the research itself mm. um, that then needs to be, to, to be delivered. That's been a particular issue for the last few years because obviously the workload demands mm. in primary care have become so um, stark and numbers of, um, of staff to deliver that workload has meant that inevitably they are looking at you know core workload responsibilities first mm. and things like teaching and research perhaps have been put into second place. Now they are however 
in the long term critical for the vitality of clinical primary care as well as for um, our own academic discipline and clearly we need to find ways of being able to protect the research that is conducted within primary care um, from being eroded by, by, by just workload demand. Mm. So that's going to be an important um, issue for us all. Um, after that, I think it is just having sufficient capacity to be able to fund the training posts mm. that ultimately will have to sustain themselves. That inevitably, I suspect, will mean fewer and larger centres, I think, that is not such a bad thing that you concentrate expertise but um, if that is the direction of which I suspect it may be we clearly also need to think how we can regionalise or provide at least some capacity across the breadth of the United Kingdom accepting that there may be some major centres that are that are the, um, the engine houses we've still got to have some um, delivery uh, in a more widespread capacity and how that sort of hub and spoke um, mechanism emerges I think is going to be another area for for thought. Mm. And and so reaching that vision and pushing forward that agenda uh, is going to take um, good leadership as well um, and I know that's one of the areas that's been very consistent uh, in your career, that's research leadership, you're head of a very successful department, director of the School of Primary Care Research and the Clark, to name but a few. Um, just broadening that discussion, you know, why is research leadership so important to build capacity in, in this field in particular? Yeah, well, I mean, in reality, obviously, leadership is an important element to any aspect of, mm. our, of the way we live our socialized lives we we need good leadership in lots of fields of uh, of of the way that humans um, get together uh, as as so called pretenders uh, in terms of research it's um, fairly obvious that you need some strategic focus around basically creating an environment that supports and develops people but also provides tangibles that like the infrastructure that they can conduct their work mm. that uh, enables them to to deliver things more effectively and efficiently mm -hmm. so and those uh, elements require a certain um, structure that, that has to have leadership aspects to it um, my view is the very um, process of, of leadership, though, needs to engage with the wider body so that it's representative leadership, that it's, um, that it's cabinet-style leadership, because then you are basically engaging in a process that is actually going to bring people on yeah. um, as, uh, as, uh, as both delivering things, but they're actually also developing the skills that will enable them to continue to deliver going forward. So there's sort of a sustainability in, in the leadership and, and the, the systems that are being set up, there's a, there's a sort of forward process to sustaining them in the future. Yeah, yeah, it's the, 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 it is basically leadership by cabinet um, rather than autocracy. Okay. Uh, my last question, and it's been fascinating hearing, hearing all of your views, but um, just on that topic, you know, many primary care researchers, particularly early career researchers, 
often have aims that include being research leaders in their fields in the future. Are there any tips or bits of advice that you can give them to that you feel you know have been useful to you, drawing on your own experience and and your success? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually a dying breed, to be honest, uh, Kamal. Uh, I was I've been sort of a self-taught um, researcher from the early days, and um, and actually um, got relatively rapid promotion in some of my earlier posts because there was a dearth of um, candidates around there. So, uh, in some ways, my experience is probably um, the least useful to the newer researcher. What do I, though, think I would focus on if I had my time again is training. I think that seeking formal training in an environment that is has got demonstrable ways that it can support training is, I think, critical. Um, I think that having a mentor is very important, and that could be the your lead academic um, PI that is on the sort of areas that you have personal interest in, but but having a, a mentor outside those areas who's more concerned about your personal academic career could be very useful as well. I think those are all very important. I think being focused is a very difficult thing for generalists to do, but it's necessary. I think you can be um, focused around methodologies, you can be focused around some clinical areas, um, but there has to be some focus in how you approach things. And then I think it's about sustainability and balance, and what we want is for people to be able to um, progress a career in a sustainable way, and that may mean that sometimes they have much busier sections of their career than other times. Uh, so I think it is important to 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 look for environments where if you wanted to take um, a part-time break or do more clinical practice for a period or have more family responsibility for a period, I think it's important to see how that fits into your your overall uh, academic career. And what that all means is that you need to be reasonably organised mm. and be thinking ahead. And the one tip I would always encouraged because even though I've had a relatively old-fashioned route to through my clinical rate I always did have short-term medium-term and long-term objectives yep. and even if I didn't articulate them as objectives I had options that I was thinking about in the medium to long term as well as um, as well as things that I had to prioritize in the short term that I think is an uh, is an important skill. Um, I think if you want to adjust what those uh, objectives are, that's absolutely fine. But you'll only do that if you're already if always thinking in a medium to long term. For me, that translated to be thinking about where I wanted to be in three to five years mm. and eight to ten years, and I've done that through my entire career. Right. That's a great tip. A great great tip to um to end on. Well, I mean, it's been fascinating hearing and sharing some of your experiences and I'm sure our listeners will will, will, will benefit a lot from it. Um, Professor Richard Hobbs, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trust the Evidence. If you liked this episode and would like to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.cebm.net.
or find us on SoundCloud and iTunes by searching Trust the Evidence. See you next time.